The Chronic Illness Therapist podcast is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. For specific questions related to your unique circumstances, please contact a licensed medical professional in your state of residence. If you are in the Georgia area and you are looking for some extra support and you have a chronic illness, I offer group therapy every Thursday at five o'clock and I currently have space for anywhere from like three to four more clients. This group is for young adults who are currently trying to figure out things like school or new jobs or you know how their illness is gonna progress and fear that comes around that. I do a lot of pain psychoeducation, and as a group, we discuss what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, and we kind of process that in a way that provides a level of personal understanding and community, which, as you might know if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I really, really believe in the healing power of community. I also have a group for teenagers. This requires parent participation, so if you have a teen with a chronic illness, The group will be this summer, um, dates to be determined based on interest, so please email me if you are interested. The teens will attend eight groups consecutively uh, each week, and parents will have four different group sessions with each other, again around pain, psychoeducation, and ways that you can communicate better with your teen. Um, It's just a really difficult time to communicate as it is, so then you throw chronic illness on top of it. and. It's really not a fun time for anyone, so I'm offering that support as well. If you are a resident of Georgia, both of these groups are open to you. They will be virtual, so it doesn't matter where in Georgia you are, but my license only allows me to do therapy with people in Georgia. And for people not in Georgia... I'm starting a new membership for people who are just kind of looking to learn the basics of acceptance work. what does it mean and what skills can help you lean into acceptance? You know, we talk a lot about acceptance on this podcast and what it is and what it isn't. So I won't repeat that all here. But if you'd like to sign up for this membership, I'm still kind of figuring out exactly what it's going to entail, but I know it will at least have videos, training videos, in a transcription with each video, as well as some worksheets when applicable. Uh, and eventually the goal is to have a community where you know people can chat with each other and kind of like a Facebook group, but I don't think it'll be on Facebook. I think it'll be on a different platform. So I'll keep you updated on that. If you're interested in learning more about that as I learn more about it and exactly you know what it's going to be, um, 
then sign up for the email list and the link will be in the show notes. And yeah, I won't spam you with lots of emails, but just updates about what's going on in the membership and, and what it all entails. So thanks. Nadia Collins is a licensed professional counselor who earned her master's of science in clinical counseling psychology from Bernal University. She's been providing individual therapy at Empower Counseling Center in Suwannee, Georgia, since her transition to private practice in February of 2020. She meets with her clients virtually for safe, effective treatment from comfortable spaces and welcomes company of all furry friends. Nadia provides trauma-focused care via EMDR and somatic approaches to help clients cope with navigating life with chronic health concerns, pain, and complex trauma. She is LGBTQIA affirming and pledges with the Gender Affirming Letter Access Project, where she offers free assessments and letters of support for those seeking gender-affirming surgeries and navigating potential barriers to care. She's passionate about helping clients learn to practice self-advocacy skills and finds comfort in living in their lives unapologetically and authentically. As a fellow Spoonie, Nadia has personal experience in navigating the ongoing grieving process associated with chronic illness and pain. She finds existing comes easiest by balancing life with a healthy dose of dark humor, self-compassion, and acceptance, along with her helpful sidekick service dog, Kodak. Additionally, she feels passionate about her activism with her profession and aiding other professionals in building cultural awareness and sensitivity to break down implicit biases and covert ableism within the healthcare field. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you being here. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about where you practice and who you work with and things like that. Sure. So I work at a private practice in Sewanee, Georgia called Empower Counseling Center. I am a licensed professional counselor. I specialize in chronic pain, chronic illness, complex trauma. I'm specifically passionate about medical trauma. I utilize EMDR for trauma as well as some like somatic pieces and good old mindfulness and some DBT thrown in there as well. Awesome. And today I know we really want to start off. I really want to start off by talking about the pain scale. This is a, this is something that all of us have experienced multiple, multiple times, a doctor, even therapists, even your friend, your mom, your partner, like, Oh, well, like what's your pain level today? What is your, what are your thoughts on the pain scale? I am not a fan simply because of how subjective the pain scale is, you know, the, the zero to 10 pain scale, it's like, well, who, who's zero, who's 10, mine or yours? How do I classify that pain? How do I describe it? Any scale is developed for research purposes. And how do you, how do you research something so subjective? And I find, I hear a lot from people within the community that Anytime they say, you know, off the scale, a nurse or a doctor may reply, well, the scale only goes to 10. And then, you know, the way that can impact the patient being embarrassed or feel shamed and stuff like that. How do do you quantify something as subjective as pain? Yeah. Or even just the fact that if your doctor is asking you like, well, what's your pain scale? Well, why? Like, why are you, what are you trying to determine through a number on a scale that is completely arbitrary. Um, Can you just ask me what I need instead? 
or have a different conversation with me. You know, if the question is like, oh, you're in a level 10 pain, that means I'm giving you X medication, or that means maybe that's even a way for you to think, oh, you're exaggerating because you can't possibly, I mean, I have, well, I have a few different clients with kidney issues and I don't, I'm realizing that there is a theme with kidney issues and doctors and pain. It's just ter- It's terrible. Like they have told my clients, like, there's no way you can be feeling this pain. There's, you know, so what does this scale? Like, it's about informed consent too. Again, if you're asking me what my number is on a scale, you should probably be telling me why you're asking that too. Yeah. And for that reason, I tend to prefer when we're talking about pain, specifically focusing on how it impacts someone's functioning. I feel like that is much more inclusive of the total picture versus, oh, my pain is such and such number because everybody's definition is different. So if we're looking at how it impacts your functioning and how it impacts your life, I feel like that sets you up for better treatment and management of symptoms. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. What are some other issues with the pain scale that you can verbalize for us? It's it's difficult because I feel like as a whole, it's it's also problematic because of implicit biases and how we as humans tend to interpret what we're hearing based on what we're seeing. So if someone's nonverbal communication or cues or whatever it might be doesn't match what the provider feels like should go with said number, that can set the stage for gaslighting and then medical trauma as a whole tends to come, come along with that as well. How do you feel like that makes people respond in response to know to knowing that I need to look a certain way in order for you to believe me? What does that often lead to? Well, I think it leads to chasing our own assumptions. So, for example, there's there's really no way to win because you have some providers that say, "Oh, if you're not crying, your number cannot be that high." While others may see those tears and be like, oh, you're just seeking medication. So it's just, it just depends on the the provider really, which puts us in a whole nother position where we are, which when you live with trauma, when you live with chronic illness, you're constantly trying to guess what other people are thinking, assume in order to keep yourself safe. And it's like, this is one more area where we have to do that. I have to guess or predict what my doctor, what kind of person my doctor is. And if they're the type that will think that my tears are exaggerating, if that's the case, then I can't show my true tears in this very emotional situation. Or say I'm not really even wanting to cry, but I feel like I have to make myself show a little bit more so that you'll believe me. And it just puts us in such a, it's such a game. Yeah. And you know, we live in a culture where we're supposed to seem fully abled. So we develop these like really great skills of masking. And sometimes going into the doctor is so anxiety inducing that we do throw on that mask. So if we pull down the mask and we allow those emotions to come out, sometimes it's harder to 
shove those emotions to the side later, which can result in exacerbation of physical pain or other medical symptoms. So it's, it's such a complex issue when it comes to how we cope on the day-to-day. What are some of your go-to kind of, uh, it is complex and it is situation dependent. So this might be, this is a very vague question, but like, what are some of your go-to coping skills for managing? I guess we could make it more specific. What are some coping skills for getting in tune with your body? And I, this, I'm asking this because we're talking about the pain scale and usually it's like, what's your pain level one through 10. And that's so arbitrary and so vague and doesn't mean anything. So what, how do you work with clients in getting them to be a little more in tune with what's happening inside? So it's, it's funny you ask because one of the EMDR training that I've had is somatic and attachment focused. So it does go into quite a bit of really going through examining like what you're feeling in your body. So there's something called a body scan where you go from head to toe, identifying areas of discomfort or pain, identifying what kind of pain it is. Is it sharp? Is it stabbing? Is it, does it throb? Is it dull? Is it achy, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be the start is just kind of going through and scanning your body and kind of like picking up on those discomfort or pain points or whatever it might be, would be probably the easiest first step. Yeah. And how does that help people? How does it help people emotionally, physically? What is the benefit of doing? Well, when it comes to trauma, trauma is often expressed physically. So by doing that, you can pair you can develop some insight on what emotions you're feeling and how that connects with these various body, bodily sensations. So for example, if someone is anxious, I might have them see where their breathing starts and stops. It often is either in the chest or even in the throat. And then you kind of move into, okay, well, I want you to connect with a happy experience so you can connect with those positive emotions and then see where your breath shifts. I think a lot of times also when we're, our breath is not going all the way down to our diaphragm where it needs to be, that also coincides with a lot of like muscle tension, especially like shoulders, neck, and all of that. So really kind of aiding in the awareness that breathing also kind of connects with different types of pain and like muscle tension and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and what would you say, like, so bringing awareness to these different areas and, and even awareness to like, what, what do you feel when you're actually in a moment of joy or a moment of happiness? What is the, what is the main reason we're trying to do that with clients? Like, What are we helping them accomplish by tapping into that? Well, when you think about mindfulness and grounding and connecting with those things, you can also identify the types of circumstances or situations which help those positive emotions kind of be tapped into. And so by identifying these positive experiences or situations or coping mechanisms that you find you feel that kind of peace in 
and kind of tracking that connection that can help them limit their exposure to those types of stimuli that create the opposite of the desired effect. By identifying the negative experiences, they can then choose, make the active choice to stay away from those things and start to really focus on living their life in a positive type, as, as positive as possible type of way. Yeah, I think it's so important because, right, like usually when people think about therapy or just even like any kind of self-help like book or it's always about like a lot of times it's like choosing, making this choice and, and it only talks about your thoughts. Like what are your maladaptive thoughts or what are your core beliefs? And it's like, one, a lot of times we don't even really know. They're so unconscious. And then two, I mean, I think everything is bi-directional, but I think a lot of times our thoughts are created after a sensation happens in our body. So there's, especially if you go back to childhood, like there are certain things that happened in your body, like in your environment that would create either attention or, and these are all very normal things that like happen in our bodies, either tension or expansion or hot or cold or and, you know, as a young kid, you start to make these associations where it's like, oh, tension and tension only means fear. So then you grow, you know, you have these experiences where it's like, okay, every time I'm tense, now my brain gives me a story of like why I'm scared, even though there maybe there was nothing to be scared of. And it's like literally just maybe like the wind blew too cold on you and your body tensed up, but now your anxiety kicks in because it only knows that tension equals fear. So I like the way you explained it because it's like, I don't remember exactly how you said it now, but yeah, we're paying attention to our body so that we can then become aware of what's actually happening. And then we get to make an informed choice rather than just tension, fear, react. Yeah, and people with chronic pain and chronic illness become so unfortunately skilled at enduring suffering that a lot of times just become second nature for us to like yeah okay I'm uncomfortable but this is my expectation in this situation I have to do chores around the house instead of take a break because I don't want to be a burden I have to go into work because I don't want to burden my coworkers. Uh, or you know with therapists we hate canceling <laughs> so it's like I, I find that that fear of being seen as a burden often pushes us past our limits and we ignore those bodily sensations in order to meet whatever expectations we feel are put on us. Yeah, I mean, it starts, we've definitely talked about this in the podcast before, so I won't repeat too much, but it, you know, it stems back to school, school age you have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom and then you still might even be told no. Like the doctor, the, the teacher might be like, no, it's time. You have to wait. Like it's not bathroom time yet. It's like bathroom time. Like my body doesn't know that at 12 o'clock it's time for the bathroom. We just we're taught so early to ignore, ignore what our bodies need and to push through, which again, going back to the pain scale and how subjective it is. It's like, yeah, if I'm used to constantly shoving things down, I might, I might come in and tell you I'm at a level three, but like, I can barely get out of bed every day. 100% agree. We are raised from a very young age to feign like being fully abled and having no issues and 
being a cog in the capitalist system, you know, this society was not built with people with disabilities in mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know maybe we can get a little bit more into gender differences. I have some thoughts around not only like, was it not designed for people with with any type of disability, but it also was not designed for women with fluctuating hormone cycles and bodily needs. So yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit just about implicit biases that we have about pain and, and some of the gender differences. So for example, studies show women are more likely to be dismissed and labeled as emotional, less likely to receive opiate pain management than men. And women, women may be more likely to be referred to mental health care instead. Can, we, can you give us some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it goes back to medical education and the history of research. So kind of like a work day you know, that nine to five is built around a man's 24 hour hormone cycle. Medical studies and medical research has heavily been done on men. And we know that every, not only is everybody different, but women having, or AFAB people having these organs, these reproductive organs that can come with a lot of issues and hormones can also impact just any kind of illness or pain experienced on a a daily basis. It's so often the assumptions made by medical providers are made off of the research that's been done on men versus women, which then leads to poor treatment or poor understanding or those assumptions well it's like well this doesn't show in the research of medical history so I don't see how this could be due to xyz it's got to be in their head hello medical gaslighting you know in the history of the the hysteria diagnosis and all of that and it's like sure emotions can absolutely express in a somatic way but it's a chicken or the egg, which came first? How do you know? You need to do thorough testing, refer out to other medical providers and specialists versus just sending them off to see a therapist or a psychiatrist. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, I mentioned bi-directional earlier and the chicken or the egg question. Yeah. Is it, I, I honestly, I have clients coming to me all the time recently, as of recent, like, I think because there's a lot more talk right now about uh, a lot of like somatic therapies and, and even like talk of like curing chronic pain and things like this. And people are hearing this stuff and people are actually much more willing. I'm finding these days to come to me saying like, actually it is all in my head. Like, can you help me? And mm-hmm. I'm like, it's not, it's not all like, it's not yeah. all in your head. It's like, there's an experience that you're having. And then there are all these emotions that can exacerbate physical symptoms, which is very, very real. Like we know that stress increases cortisol. Why, why is it so hard to accept that stress or emotions would increase pain receptors in your body without then saying like, that means it's quote in your head. So mm-hmm. it's just a little, a little bit like a lot of education lately. And, and it's difficult because I just don't think we have all of the we do have a lot of pain science, but 
there's still a lot of division even within the pain science world and there's and also like we're talking about emotions exacerbating certain things different things are true for different people so there's different theories and different techniques and some people might feel like they're broken if one one didn't work for them you know oh this is clearly like my issue and it's like no like we're all so individual there's no way every technique is going to work it's not going to work for every person so another problem i guess back to the pain scales just how subjective this experience is which which we've been talking about but again you know for women too like obviously i think <laughs> you grow up hearing or for when you mentioned AFAB earlier, so I just wanted to find that for the audience, assigned female at birth. And we, I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing like, oh, literally like, are you on the rag? Was always how it was said. Like, oh, are you on the rag? It's so, it's just so like, and the, the way it's said is so demeaning. And so like, oh, you're like, what's wrong with you? You're like, and yeah, I'm sorry, I'm being a human. My body is like going through a process here. We're physically, our muscles are physically, and tendons are physically weaker when we are menstruating. So it, it would only make sense that you'd be more fatigued, have less, you know, but instead we kind of, yeah, we want to push through and act like there's nothing off. And every day is just this consistency, which was what we were talking about earlier with assigned male at birth is you have a 24 hour clock. And it's not to say that men, men are the same every day. Like they obviously have their own fluctuations, but they still have this hormonal, it's one less fluctuation that they have to deal with versus what all of the different fluctuations that we have to deal with. We have four different phases in our cycle. So it's a lot of change in one month, every month. <laughs> yeah. And not to mention that our inflammation is also more likely to be at an elevated level when we are menstruating as well. Bodies are complex. And going back to the pain scale, it's like, how do, how do you fit all of these factors that could be impacting it into this one number I'm supposed to give you? It, life is complex. Why can pain be expected to be placed on a, like a, a 10 point scale. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about research and, and women are, are historically not even researched at all, but even like lately there's been a, a shift to include more women in the studies, but now there's there. So they're doing that, but yet there, there's no, where are you in your menstruation cycle? There's no, in your menstrual cycle, there's no talk of like where we're at hormonally and it's because it's complicated. So they're trying to make it less complicated, but in doing so, they're making it a lot less precise, but yeah, which has done a lot of good. But I think sometimes we can just put it on this like gold pedestal and it's like, well, the research says this, so therefore your experience is meaningless. Yeah. And I think also another thing is when you are an AFAB individual, the expectation is you were, you were born with these female reproductive organs. You were born with these organs needed for childbirth. Therefore you're, you're expected to be in more pain, which I think can also mess with like how we're believed when we do give a rating on a pain scale, whether it's, they think that it's just emotions or they think like, oh, this patient is clearly lying because 
they're presenting as a woman, women withstand pain better or something like that. That's awful. And the same thing for African-Americans, they literally were mm. taught at school that they don't feel pain and that's just, it's brutally awful. I don't even mm -hmm. know how to describe how awful that is. And, and black women, I believe, yeah, for their black women are 400% more likely to die in childbirth or as a result of birth complications. Do you want to expand any, any thoughts on that and, and kind of what you, you can or we can, it's totally up to you, but what are some of the contributing factors or what just, what could be changed? I think that something that really needs to be focused more on when it comes to medical research and stuff like that is intersectionality. So there's so many reasons why non-white patients could be treated differently, but also looking at the likelihood of developing some sort of disability as a result of having an intersected identity and being in forced poverty or not having access to good healthcare because you don't have access to the education needed for these higher income jobs that come with health benefits and all of those things. Uh, or you don't have access to the, the dietary needs that you know, are required for good health depending on your condition. Yeah, absolutely. Just, which a lot of times starts in childhood, even just, did mm -hmm. you get enough calcium and vitamin C, like simple, simple things that can be really incredibly difficult to make sure your kid is getting given your situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think too, so like recognizing intersectionality and then also just, which I, I think is an ongoing conversation all the time in our country but making sure there's more representation of, of everyone in each profession. I, I think often I, I learned this from Malcolm Gladwell's podcast years ago, but you know, I don't think a lot of people realize like when segregation, when we were desegregated as a country, like basically black teachers were just fired and black kids were transferred into white schools and labeled as all of these, they're the troublemakers or they're all from implicit and explicit biases not because the kids were actually making trouble and when you're not around people who look like you and talk like you and act like you you feel like an other and it's harder to learn it's harder to live so we just need more people who are represented in every every profession yeah and and desegregation and jim crow and all of that was not that long ago i i think people tend to forget it was not that long ago. No, you can still see the effects of it today. And yeah, it's, it really, I think, like you said, 400 times more likely to die on childbirth. I think that's a pretty, that's, that's not, that's not 12%. That's not like, that's a substantial number, the substantial. Mm -hmm. number. I mean, any, any number above the average for, for, white people is unacceptable. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, it's interesting too, like all of the research, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast too, but for therapists, for medical doctors, for all types of professions, there's, there are, there's research done on the efficacy of treatments. 
And it always comes down to the relationship between the provider and the patient. So it's not just therapy that that's relevant for. It's medical doctors, it's physical therapists. Like if you don't have a relationship with the person, and we don't these days for an array of reasons, managed care, insurance, high turnover rates in large group practices that aren't paying their doctors as much as they should, making huge profit margins, all these things lead to why we don't have a relationship with our providers. So that this way, when we do say my pain is at a level five, or a level 10, if we have a relationship with our provider, they know us, they know what that means without us fully having to explain it. But now the onus is on us to make sure we are very articulate and are saying things exactly as we quote should. And it's stressful and Mm -hmm. unnecessarily so. It's a guessing game too. And it's self-advocacy is so important, but so exhausting and like having the awareness that you can file fire a medical provider if they are not meeting your needs is not something commonly known yeah or if you do know it it's also like oh like I don't want to go find another one like I'm just gonna stick it out here the next one may be just as bad yeah 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 And I think that is a theme on the podcast of like, when I ask people what has helped them most, you know, in their own journeys, a lot of people who've been interviewed on this podcast are like, it's just keep trying, like keep going from doctor to doctor, which in and of itself, again, it takes time, takes energy. It takes emotional energy. And so it's not easy, but it is, it is how we all get, that is the way we get through it. Like we have to find providers who are willing to listen. And, and then of course, sadly, AFAB people are more likely to be listened when they bring a male presenting partner or family member with them. Yeah, I hear that a lot too. And I don't know the reason for that other than obviously implicit biases, but I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard to, I mean, learning to, I think for me, learning to be assertive has helped me in a lot of ways. But again, that's like, why did I have to learn that? Because men are historically more assertive than women. And so therefore being assertive helps me be believed. And I I think also as counselors and as therapists or social workers, we recognize that the client is the expert and we help people you know, own their power. So it it puts us at a unique position to be able to advocate for ourselves because we have the education that not everyone has. We understand that you believe the person the first time, which then, you know, it just sets us up to, to have more success advocating for ourselves as a whole, ideally. No, I agree. Every time I start to think about like when I'm working with clients, I'm being assertive or speaking up what, for what they need. Like I do really recognize, like I'm, I've been trained in this. This is my entire training is like how to talk and how to, you know, articulate what I'm feeling. And so it just for people listening, like it does, it takes time. And I probably learned it faster than anybody who is not going to school for this to be a therapist or to communicate, you know, in some, some way, journalism would probably help you too, or something like that, but teaching, uh, teaching. Yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah, it is, it is a skill that is worth learning. It just takes time. Mm -hmm. And it is heavily influenced by trauma as well. Mm -hmm. Especially when we're talking like emotional neglect in childhood, it, you know, you may be more likely to just be like, oh, okay, well, this, this is what it is. But you know, I'm not going to fight the doctor on it. I'm not going to, it's because I know what it's like to have bad outcomes because of my experience in childhood. Right. Right. Or even if you lean more towards the, the fighter side of things, maybe you fight a little too quickly and you, you know, now your doctor's like not on your side anymore. It, it, it really does come down. This is why therapy with people with chronic illness is so important and why it's so closely tied to your childhood experiences. It's not that, you know, I mean, we, we know from ACEs that early childhood experiences such so much increases our risk of having a chronic illness. But again, it's not that the trauma is like at fault and then therefore you're going to a therapist because it's all in your head and now you're trying to reverse that. It's just more so like there are so many maladaptive coping mechanisms that we formed that continue to hurt us as adults. They made us safe as kids and they harm us as adults. So that's what a lot of my work looks like in session. Yeah. And that's, that's the approach with the EMDR that I was trained in as well is, you know, you develop these, you overdevelop certain skills and then as a result have underdeveloped other skills, which get you where you need to go and then start causing problems right. when right. you're an adult on your own and all of that good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Does anything else feel important about this conversation that you want to share today? Oh, age. Mm. So oftentimes for AFAB individuals, like for example, autoimmune diseases love to show up early twenties, childbearing ages, when you're the picture perfect idea of good health. And I think that that also goes into being believed and taken seriously by, by doctors. And then uh, let's see, comorbidities. Uh, I think that's also important is people with history of substance use concerns are often less likely to be taken seriously, labeled as drug seekers when their pain is just as important. Their struggle is just as important and they deserve pain management in whatever way, despite having substance use history. That's also another big one. I think it's such a tricky conversation because yeah, I mean, even to think about, well, why is someone, why is someone seeking out drugs who like, especially for, we we've just, we've learned in this, I think in this country that everything needs to be like fixed with a quick pill. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of social support and being cared for and having community and all of these things that we know are really, really healing. That's just not even an option for a lot of people. So when we go to the doctor and that's, and then that, that's the only tool that you've been given as a doctor. It's just like, we've been set up in this system. We're just, we're just set up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Any last thoughts that you want to leave people with today? Any words of advice or hope or just like something that kind of keeps you going? So 
one thing I think is important when we're talking about implicit biases is my my favorite recommendation for people uh, who have relationships with someone with chronic pain, as well as like healthcare providers, is when someone tells you what their pain level is, believe them, even if the presentation challenges your own perceptions. They are the only ones that know how they feel. It's better often, if not always, to believe them to get them the right treatment than to just say, oh, go see this mental health counselor. Or, oh, it's just emotions or, uh, you know, whatever it may be. It's, it's so important to just believe them when they tell you what their experience is because only they know. Not to mention, if you're showing them that you believe them, they don't need to exaggerate anything or dramatize anything. To, they just, they know you're going to provide for them when they tell you the truth. So it's a really good precedent to, to make. Yeah, and a, and a great resource to kind of identify where you may have implicit biases is the implicit bias testing on the Harvard website for free for all types of marginalizations, including people with disabilities, age, sex, race, et cetera. Yeah, thanks for sharing that resource. I'll <laughs> put a link to that in the show notes. Any, anything else come to mind before we hop off for today? Just, I would say for people out there that may be listening that struggle with chronic pain and chronic illness, um, your experience, matters just as much as the next person. You deserve to be listened to. You deserve to be cared for. You deserve proper treatment. And it's okay to, that's so cheesy. It's okay to not be okay. Like it's okay to take a rest. There's no such thing as laziness. The laziness lie is something that is also a great read the term laziness was, it's always being used to oppress people. Yeah. And you don't deserve that. Rest is just as productive as doing the dishes. It really is. And it's not just something we're saying because it sounds good. It, it's literally true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for all of that. It, it was really helpful and I'm looking forward to, to publishing this. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.